Let's pray, and then we will uh, pick up where we left off last week with um, sort of the middle of what is called the Dutch Reformation. We'll kind of finish that up, and then we'll move on to there's a Scottish Reformation. Then we'll spend, we'll not get done with the English Reformation. Um, So, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with us this evening. Again, thank you for enabling each of us to be here. We pray that you would be present in all the activities that are going on here this evening. Plant seeds, especially in young hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you remember last week, we dealt with what's called the Swiss Reformation, and that introduced us to John Calvin, and it introduced us to um, what's called, uh, to up until this day, Reformed theology. And Reformed theology, um, you know, kind of an overview, thumbnail sketch can be looked at in the, through the tulip thing. Everybody remember that from last week? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. That was under some attack by some university professors. They didn't agree with it. Felt like it wasn't biblical. Um, A leading theologian um, by the name of Jacob Arminius was given the job of refuting them, spent about two years studying their writings, scripture, so forth, and ended up coming out agreeing with the people he was supposed to to rebuke. Um, That set off a major ruckus. Um, The Dutch Parliament, remember the states were just as involved in theological issues as the church, Dutch Parliament voted. There was all kinds of back and forth, up and down votes. There were new um, called confessions that were written out, new statements of faith. Um, And I, I think you could probably say that on the whole, Arminius and and those that followed him who became called Arminians, were not in the majority, but they were a big enough minority that it really, you know, it tore things up. They were in the minority enough that um, many of the Arminians, some of them were executed, burned at the stake. Some of them were exiled, sent, you know, wherever. Arminius <clears throat> lived, he was not executed. Um, but those two, those two theologies really are the, if you could boil Protestantism down, there are two main theological streams in Protestantism. And in some way or another, all parts of Protestantism 
and sometimes maybe barely, but they are related to those two streams. Um, and there, there are a lot of people that try to kind of be, kind of stay in the middle, which I don't personally think is possible. Um, they're contradictory. But at any rate, um, the, the Dutch Reformation then produced Arminianism, which has been a competitor to Reformed theology ever since. The two are, um, I don't know if you'd, I guess you'd call it a war, um, but they're, they're, we can't agree. I, you know, I am, my father who had been in four, he'd heard four gospel sermons in his whole life, um, but just had a good conscience and honesty, was um, converted on Okinawa in World War II. And he had, he said he had the awfulest Southern Baptist chaplain um, over his, whatever it was, group. Just preached hellfire damnation every time he got the chance. Um, that's the only sermon he knew, apparently. Um, but it had an effect on my dad, and my dad was a lieutenant and he had a jeep driver, and the jeep driver was a Christian. And so he would talk to him. And, um, but at any rate, he got saved over in Okinawa. Well, we came back, um, married my mom, and felt very clearly called to preach. Um, he just figured he would start, you just got a church somewhere and you just started preaching. Well, my mother was a Methodist and her third or fourth generation Methodist, her grandparent, her grandparents, my great grandparents, uh, he was a Methodist circuit rider in northern, northern Indiana. Um, and so, when he got home, my dad got home from the war, he didn't know what he was. Well, he met my mom, so she settled the issue for him rather quickly. He was a Methodist. Um, <clears throat> so he went to a nearby university that was not, um, what, officially Methodist, but it was formed by Methodists, heavily influenced and attended by Methodists, Taylor University in Indiana. Um, he got there on the very first day that he showed up on campus. Um, he was identified back then, if you were a freshman, you had to wear a stupid beanie cap with a you know, propeller on the top of it or something. And, you know, so he said it was really, it was a peculiar time in America because you had all these GIs coming home. They had killed people. They'd flown, you know, crashed planes and done all kinds of stuff. And then they come back into this culture where you go to the university and you've got to be a freshman, wear a beanie hat. You know what I mean? But anyway, um, the first day in his first class, someone asked him, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? It was the first question he got. His answer, he just stared at him, and he said, oh, I'm an American. 
They had no idea what it meant. Um, but that is basically where Protestantism is at. You're either an Arminian um, of several different hues, or you're a Calvinist of several different stripes. Okay. Um, the one good thing about him, he said, well, they said, no, it's the theology. He said, well, explain what you mean. They briefly told him what Calvinism meant, what Arminianism meant. He said, well, he said, if that's what they mean, I'm an Arminian. Um, I don't believe in eternal security. Um, he used to tell us kids, I, I don't think he made it up, but... Um, he used to tell us, he said, I rejected Calvinism when I was eight um, because he went to the little neighborhood VBS Baptist um, church around the corner from him. His parents never went to church. And he said one day in class in VBS, the teacher told him, isn't it wonderful, children, that if you give your heart to Jesus now or whatever, you never can lose, you can never lose him. You will go to heaven no matter what you do. He said, at eight, he raised his hand and he said, I don't believe that. So he had a really good natural Arminian bent um, that <clears throat> wish more people would have inherited. But anyway, um, that's, those are the two main streams then to today in Protestantism still. Um, kind of define uh, Protestantism. Now, <clears throat> um, we're not going to spend much time, any more time, on the Dutch um, Reformation. Um, that division re remained. It spread to other lands. It spread to England, both Arminianism. So that wherever, usually, wherever you find um, Reformed theology, Arminianism will crop up. Wherever you find Arminianism, there'll be Reformed crop up. So it's kind of like um, they're antagonists forever. Switching to um, Scotland. Um, now Scotland, though it's part of the British, um, then the British Kingdom, um, they were pretty independent, still are today, um, but they were heavily influenced by Reformed theology. And the leader of what became Presbyterianism, which was born, I think we could say safely, in Scotland, was John Knox. Um, famous, famous, great saint of, of God. Um, during his lifetime, Mary, Queen of Scots, who had become Queen of England, said of John Knox, who obviously was a Protestant and she was a Catholic and she was trying to bring England back to being Catholic. She said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of Europe. Um, he was a, a towering power. Um, but he formed the Presbyterian Church. Now, Presbyterianism is more a description of the government of the church than the theology. 
the theology of Presbyterianism is Reformed. Tulip. Okay. Um, but this is hard also for us to understand. But then the laity had nothing to say. In Catholicism, the laity weren't even able to take, they could, they could sometimes, in some cases, eat the bread, but there were some cases where they weren't even allowed to eat the bread, but they for sure could not drink the cup. That's the blood of Christ when the priest drinks that, does it on their behalf. So the idea that you give lay people a voice in the government of church and especially in the choosing of their pastors was just uh, eyes glazed over, okay? So Presbyterianism was a form of government that was based on theology, that the layperson has as much, it's the universal priesthood of all believers. The layperson is equal to the minister as far as value in God, ability to approach the throne of God the Father through Jesus the Son. Um, it does not need a um, um, person to you know, represent them. Jesus does. So um, that was a radical, radical idea to let lay people have a voice. Um, and so Presbyterianism became the state church of Scotland and then, of course, that spread to America. It spread, you know, um, a lot of places. Now, I got to backtrack because um, I forgot something. Um, if you guys wrote down or remember, it's, you know, seared into your minds, TULIP, okay? If you have that written down in your notes or whatever, I know everyone studiously, you know, takes notes. I want to give you Arminius's counter doctrines. Now you can't spell anything with them, okay? Um, but Arminianism has five competing points or answers to total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. The first. Arminianism, along with Calvinism, believes in total depravity. But there's a qualifying word that we use. Calvinism's doctrine of total depravity would be called total depravity intensive. Okay? And by intensive, it means we are so completely depraved, there is no, there is not a shred of goodness in us anywhere, okay? Now, technically, Arminianism agrees, but for, there's a different word that's used and I'll explain why. Arminianism believes in total depravity extensive. Extensive means um, that there is no part no faculty that we have that isn't affected by sin. But because of prevenient grace, our faculties specifically, reason, affections or emotions, and will are freed up 
from the pollution of sin. Without that prevenient grace, they would be destroyed. We wouldn't be able to choose to obey God, to respond to God's call to us. Um, with Calvinism, total depravity, intensive, meant there was no aid given to the will and the reason and the feelings to um, call those faculties to be used to respond to God. That's why they had to come up with the you, unconditional election. God had to choose who would be saved and not choose those who would be damned because no one can choose. Arminianism said because of prevenient grace, all people have restored as an unconditional benefit of the atonement the capacity to understand and hear God's voice and respond to it and is therefore responsible. Okay? Now, um, the you unconditional election, the Arminian response, of course, is that um, there's a universal call extended to every human being. Titus 2, 11. The grace of God has appeared unto all men, teaching us that... No, I, my brain's... I'm on drugs right now. Um, teaching us that... Um, we should live righteously and godly in this present evil world and it also that we should say no to wickedness and so forth but live righteously and godly in this present evil world. Um, a, a, another scripture, Jesus in John chapter 1 is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. The notion then um, that only some in fact, a minority are called and elected to be saved is just not biblical. Um, the whosoever will, John 3:16, um, and the every other place where all men, whosoever, um, refutes the notion of a narrowly selected uh, group that will be saved. So it's a universal call of salvation that goes out to all people. Um, limited atonement that Jesus only died for those that were previously chosen to be saved is of course done away with that um, he died and the scripture is clear here too that he died um, to cover the sins of the whole world not just the elect by the way um, This, I, I probably don't practice this totally, but mostly. Over the years, I don't know if people just kind of leave me alone now or what, but I seem to get into less arguments over Calvinism and, um, you know, the truth. Um, because I think it's, it's pretty well... I know there's exceptions, but it's pretty hard to argue with a Calvinist. Not, it's very easy to argue with Calvinists to me and, and have them dead to rights. But they don't know it. I mean, they don't know it. 
You can tie them in knots and refute what they're saying. They don't even know it. Because when it says, seriously, when whosoever believes shall not perish. Whosoever, that's the elect. God calls all men. Well, that's the elect. All of the elect. You can't talk to them. So I think most cases, here's another thing I've got from my dad that I've never forgotten. He said, you take a piece of coat hanger wire, put a really sharp bent in it, now try to straighten it out. <laughs> and he told me, Calvinists are just like a piece of coat wire. Coat wire. You can't get it out of their head. Um, Anyway, there's probably some that you can, but um, when you've been steeped in that, um, it's really, a, it's hard to get out. <clears throat> now, uh, so limited atonement is universal atonement. Um, the I, irresistible grace, of course, the grace of God is resistible. Um, that's what I, that's another thing that is just a mystery to me when you look at the whole notion of the sovereignty of God according to Reformed theology, that God's sovereignty just simply cannot be thwarted, period. Or he isn't sovereign. So he must bowl his way through and have his will. I don't care what. Overriding man's will, doesn't matter. He will get his way. It's just not true. Um, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have rejected God's purpose for you. How can you do that? God's sovereign. Or to me, a primary one, you have Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And the word there in the original language is to sob out loud or literally to, to bellow. Um, as he looked at Jerusalem, he said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you stone the prophets that are sent to you and you kill those who I've sent. <clears throat> he said, How often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Okay? Now, Jesus should have gotten unnumbered Oscars on the spot for bawling over people who he said defied his will when before the fall he chose that they wouldn't respond to him. It's patently absurd. So it's hard for this, another reason, it's best for me not to get in too many arguments because it's just hard to remain too civil. You know what I mean? It's tough to be nice because it's stupid. It's just all there is to it. Um, anyway, now, just briefly, I've, I've said enough, I think, on the um, Scottish, Scotland went 100% reformed, formed a Presbyterian church, um, stamped out, for the most part, Catholicism, not completely, but um, they, they turned away from uh, the Roman church. Now, we come to what will not, 
be able to finish, I don't think. And that's the English Reformation. The English Reformation to me is really interesting, but it's very, very hard to follow. One thing I think I mentioned last week, I'll just mention it again, that makes this such, it's just a spider web of, of all of these reformations because of the, the two things. One, the total unification of church and state. That is something foreign to us, but the total unification of church and state and the incestuous, stagnant, ingrown third eye in the middle of your head um, state of the monarchy through Europe. You, you don't ever marry a commoner, okay? So you have the different countries, states, provinces, whatever you want to call them, in Europe, Italy, France, Spain, you got England, and all of these people, where do you go to marry a, a royal? Well, you got a, Queen Elizabeth marries, remember Philip, wasn't he Greece, Greek? Um, and they, that is the most intermarried bunch, um, and they would marry into, for political, military, economic reasons, they would marry, I want your daughter to marry my son, and she might be a Catholic and he might be a Protestant. Well, if he drops dead, there's no heir, and somehow she becomes queen, then she makes the whole realm Catholic. And that kind of stuff just went back and forth, back and forth. The Protestant was conf confiscate all the property, the mo monasteries, closed down the monasteries, uh, stop paying any taxes to Rome um, and then that king had died and a Catholic came and everything gets reversed and the, all the monks come out of the caves and the woodwork and they're back in business and they're back sending money to Rome and they're burning the Protestants and it, that kind of stuff went on for at least a hundred years or more just back and forth England would be probably where the um, some of the clearest um, of that kind of stuff went on. <clears throat> now, I got some names here. They're, they're important, but obviously um, you're not going to probably remember these by next week. Um, but the English Reformation, um, maybe before we start, let me just ask you, anybody know anything about the English Reformation and how the how England broke away from Rome and what the basis of it was. And yeah. <clears throat> Henry the Eighth, deeply spiritual man. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, now, there are 50 other reasons that go into all this, but um, at least the surface things that brought about the breach between England, the establishing of the English church or the Anglican church, 
and Rome um, started like a lot of them did in the universities. And the two outstanding universities in England are Oxford and Cambridge. And, um, you know, it's interesting how a lot of bad things have started. The Vietnam mess, you know, the burn the draft cards and all, started on college campuses. Um, but a lot of Reformation things and turnings back to God in the Reformation period started in the universities. Um, so both Cambridge and Oxford, of course, as the other universities in Europe, they quickly got Luther's writings, Zwingli's writings, Calvin's writings. Um, and all, a lot of this, you know, we've spent, I don't know how many weeks on this, but everything we've talked about was going on at exactly the same time. While we're talking about Calvin, stuff's going on in Scotland, you know, Spain, wherever, okay? But you got to kind of um, put them in some kind of order. So in the universities, they're reading, of course, remember, quite a while ago, um, <clears throat> a number of weeks ago, mentioning a couple guys that we called pre-Reformation people, um, John Wycliffe was a primary English forerunner. Um, he was nearly, and John Huss, he was from Bavaria. Uh, but those two men were about a hundred years before Luther. But they sowed a lot of seeds of the very same thinking and theology that Huss and Wycliffe did. Wycliffe was English. Um, <clears throat> and Wycliffe translated the Bible into English, which was... Um, forbidden to do by the Pope. But at any rate, um, so you have some, a few seeds in the ground already. But in, during the time of Luther, the 1520s or so, far, so forth, there was, um, there was a student group at Cambridge and they were reading Luther, which was brand new. Um, and by the way, I think I mentioned this. Did I mention the invention of the Gutenberg printing press. That, that was so critical because otherwise it had been hand co copied copies that had gotten across the channel into the universities, but now you had the printing press. So it, God greatly aided the spread of all these writings. Um, there was a guy who's not, well, he's important, but he's not named much anymore, Thomas Bliney. And he led a little student group that grew um, at Cambridge and teaching Luther's th um, theology and his thinking. He ended up being burned at the stake in 1531. Um, but he also had influence on a couple of people who were bigger names. One of them was a guy named Hugh Latimer. Um, and we'll save him for a little bit later. Um, <coughs> Latimer and Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, um, two guys that were burned at the stake but had a lot to do with the English Reformation. Um, along came another guy who you may have heard of, William Tyndale. Okay, Tyndale, um, Tyndale's dates are 1494 to 1536. He translated the Bible now about 100 years after Wycliffe did. Tyndale translated the Bible into English. 
But he used different, and I can't get into all this, but he used different manuscripts. Um, the, Catholic, the Catholic Church had an official version in the Latin translated from Greek and Hebrew called the Vulgate. And so I think Wycliffe, a hundred years earlier, when he translated the Bible into English, I can't remember for sure, but I don't think he used the Vulgate. He tried to use um, more uh, of the original um, manuscripts. Um, Tyndale did not, I don't know why, but he didn't rely on Wycliffe. Most translators will build somewhat or at least strongly check their translation against earlier and other translations. He didn't. He came with basically a fresh translation, um, not dependent on Wycliffe. And Wick, or Tyndale was also a reformer. There's a Tyndale publishing house today, too, um, named for him. Um, but he was finally tried. Um, he was removed from the priesthood because he was a, he was a priest. Um, in his case, they strangled him, and then they burned his body. Um, <clears throat> now, um, some of those guys were early on, um, and then <clears throat> in the course of things, um, right at the turn, um, probably 10 years before Tyndale got burned, you have um, Henry VIII ending up coming to the throne. Now, if there's, I don't know, I think this is recorded, isn't it? I hope no one who knows anything about church history, the few people I do know hope aren't listening, um, to how convoluted I can probably make this be and totally um, erroneous. But anyway, um, I think, let's see, I think there was a, well, there was a Henry VII, and then I'm not sure, but I think he had a, he had a son named Arthur, and Arthur was married at 14 to Catherine, and Catherine was the daughter of the Spanish king and queen, okay? Now, this was purely, like all of them, arranged marriage for the good of England. England at that time was weaker and inferior to Spain. Spain was still on the rise. The back of Spain's power wasn't broken until 1588 when you have the um, ruin of the Spanish Armada in the English Channel um, fighting against the British. But at any rate, so Spain's a rising power. Uh, they are thick in the exploration of the New World and all that. Um, and so it's a good thing for Henry VII to get his son married to a daughter of the king of Spain. Um, Arthur's 14, Catherine's 16, okay, and they're married. Um, I think Arthur was, they said, weakly and sickly, and he died in about six months, okay? Well, they needed badly this connection with the power of Spain. So Henry VII arranged to have 
his another son, who was to become Henry VIII, married to Catherine. Okay? Now, I do not know where this came from or why, but there was a law in Roman Catholicism that you could not marry the wife um, of your brother who was deceased. Okay? Now, that makes no sense to me. First of all, of course, the Bible long fell into disuse, but in, in the Old Testament, it was a requirement. Um, of course, they had polygamy, but which God put up with for a time being. You were supposed to marry your brother's, if, she, if he died and left a childless wife, you were to marry her and raise up children to keep your brother's line going. So why the Catholic Church determined that that was a mortal sin, it was against the law, I don't know. But they did. So they had to get the Pope's permission for Henry VIII um, to marry Catherine. Okay? Um, all kinds of stuff went on um, trying to work this out. And in 1504, the Pope finally gra uh, grudgingly approved of it. Okay? So he could. They would relax that law um, and they would allow Henry VIII to marry Catherine. He in, Henry VIII was only 13 when this 1504 edict, yeah, you can marry Catherine, came through. They didn't actually get married till 15, I think it was 08 or 09, okay? So he would have been, he was 18. It was when he came to the throne, and he was 18 years old, 1509, um, okay? So he marries Catherine. Well, <clears throat> she was unable, they had children, seeming to have a decent marriage to start with, but she never brought, um, gave birth to a male heir. Now, way back, and I think it was in the 13s or something, England had had a queen for a while, I can't even remember who it was, and it didn't go well, um, and so they were, they were misogynistic, okay? Um, they didn't want another woman. They didn't want a queen, can't have it. We all remember 200 years ago it didn't went bad. So, um, meanwhile, Henry VIII, um, by the way, was no different than almost all of the nobility, including most of the clergy, large part of the clergy, and more of the bishops and the officials of the church. They all had mistresses, concubines, whatever you want to call them, girlfriends on the side, okay? So Henry, Catherine, keeps having girls, and the clock is ticking, and so Henry, he sees Anne Boleyn, and so he wants to figure out, I got to get a divorce from Catherine, okay? Well, here's what happened. He contacts the Pope. He tries to get a divorce from Catherine. But here we are introduced back into this impenetrable web of intermarrying. Catherine has a nephew named Charles. He's Charles V, 
the Holy Roman Emperor, who helps not only put, but keep the Pope in his office. Henry or, or Charles V, being the Holy Roman Emperor, was commander of the armies that would come to the aid of the Pope if he needed it. Okay, so the Pope can't give a divorce to Henry VIII to get rid of Catherine or he'd make Charles V mad. Okay? Now, of course, all of this is deeply prayed over and it's all, what, what does God want? God isn't within 100 miles of any of this. It's all pure calculation, politics, and skullduggery. So, <clears throat> um, because the Pope refused um, to grant a divorce, then Henry begins his move um, away from Rome. He starts it by confiscating for the umpteenth time, confiscating the property that the Church of Rome owned in England, the monasteries, churches, hospitals, all kinds of stuff that they had. They were the major landowners next to the royalty in all of England was the Roman Catholic Church. So he begins to um, take those away, get written, you know, scatter all the monks, and they, all kingdoms, had to pay an annual sum to the Pope. Well, Henry VIII stopped that. So he didn't send any money to the Pope anymore. But he still couldn't figure out what to do to get a divorce because the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce. Well, meantime, and this is so confusing, I, I'll just kind of touch on it. You have your own hierarchy within the Roman Catholic Church in England because you have the Archbishop of Canterbury, and then you have also, you have a cardinal, in this case a guy's name was Woolsey. Um, Thomas Woolsey was the cardinal. And he couldn't even figure out how they could prevail on the Pope to give Henry VIII um, a divorce. So Henry determines that he'll just cut Rome off and he will elevate somebody within England Archbishop of Canterbury or somebody and essentially make them um, the authority in England and that person can give him a divorce and Rome can just drop dead. Um, so that's what he set out to do. Um, it took, you know, it took several years to figure it out but there was a guy, a very brilliant um, professor at Cambridge, I believe, um, by the name of Thomas Cranmer. Okay, that becomes an important name. Thomas Cranmer floated the idea that maybe the king, instead of, forget Rome, because they were all on the same page there, um, forget Rome, why don't you submit the question of the um, right to divorce Catherine to the universities because the universities often weighed in on all theological questions, all church questions. They would put those to the university professors and so forth and they'd debate them and they'd come up with a solution. So Henry VIII thought that was a really good thing to do. Plus he didn't forget the name Thomas Cranmer. And so the Universities, 
considered it, you'd be stunned to hear that they decided that he could divorce Catherine, okay? Um, and it gets kind of fouled up in, you know, there's the Tom, Thomas More, a lot of people heard of Thomas More and Thomas Beckett, um, who Henry VIII made Canter Archbishop of Canterbury and then ended up having him killed. Just all kinds of crazy stuff going on during all this. But anyway, um, <clears throat> so in, let's see, I think it was 15, finally 1529, so it was quite a while after um, marriage, at least 10, 12 years, the marriage to Catherine when she didn't produce male heirs, um, that the universities agreed, and so um, Henry VIII was given the right to divorce Catherine, which he does. And meanwhile, um, he marries Anne Boleyn, who was already pregnant with their first child, okay? So that was a shotgun, you know, it was a hurry up wedding um, in that situation, okay? Um, <clears throat> and the marriage had to be secret. Um, and then he ended up getting the English Parliament, again, church and state, the English Parliament granted officially the divorce to Catherine because she, she, of course, had failed to bring forth um, a male heir. Now, um, once this came out, the marriage, the divorce, the seizing of Catholic Church property, the Pope excommunicates Henry VIII, okay? Then he goes a step further and he institutes what we've talked before about an interdiction. No priest in all of England could offer communion to anybody until Henry VIII knuckled under. Well, by this point, maybe literally 300 years earlier, or and for a long time, an interdiction would have scared a king to death and he'd have knuckled. By this time, it was, that train had left the station. And the Pope, the Pope just had rapidly waning authority um, and influence, especially to far off England. So Henry VIII ended up then um, redoing the church, basically, um, and in he got Parliament in 1534, which was about four years after they voted to give him a divorce. Um, in 1534, he got Parliament to declare the church was separate, and separate from Rome, and that Henry VIII was the head of the church. Okay, so in it ended up Parliament made Henry VIII. He made him do it, but you know. Um, they voted that he was head of the whole realm and head of the church, okay? Um, so that even to this day, in England you have the Archbishop of Canterbury is the acknowledged um, religious head of the church, but technically the queen is still the head of the church. 
No, it was much, today it's more um, title only. Then it really was. So you have Henry VIII doing everything from the army to taxes to laws to everything and naming archbishops and bishops and running the church and doing whatever he wants over here. Um, so um, they abolished the monasteries, confiscated all the property, um, officially published a, an, another English Bible called by two guys now, Tyndale, and then an, another guy that you may have heard of, Miles Coverdale, was another translator. He and Tyndale, they put together what was called in capital letters, the Great Bible. And that was used in the English churches. Um, really, um, then there was another one called the Bishop's Bible. But basically, the Great Bible was used until 1611 when King James... Um, commissioned the translation of a new translation, which is the King James Version of the Bible. Okay? And that one lasted, which maybe we'll talk about later, um, but that one had a huge impact even on the uh, evolution of the English language itself. Um, the whole evolution of the English language slowed down for a period of several centuries. Um, I'd say pushing 300 years because the King James was so popular and so seeped into the language of everyday people, political speeches, everything else, even up to, I've got a book of Winston Churchill's speeches. They are just shot through with King James Bible quotations. Um, and those became the cliches. Those became the just figures of speech everywhere. Um, but at any rate, <clears throat> it had been prohibited to have a language in the vernacular in English or German or whatever you were up until the separation of the Church of England from the Catholics. Um, Cranmer became the Archbishop of Canterbury, <clears throat> um, and I have today, of course it's a modern translation, but it's the exact same words, um, the 1556 um, book, English Book of Common Prayer, written by Thomas Cranmer. Um, and it has readings for every single day. Of course, it has all kinds of rituals and litanies for um, the evening service, the morning service, and the entire Christian calendar every single Sunday is something. Um, marriage, burial, um, baptism, um, you have baptism of infants, which the uh, English church kept from Catholicism. Um, and then you have, after the baptism of infants, which was 99% of everybody was baptized as an infant. Okay. Um, then there's another ritual after that same page. It's a baptism of those who are of riper years. <laughs> meaning adults um, who weren't baptized as infants. Um, anyway, so <clears throat> the Church of England then was in those following years really um, regulated and organized um, as a totally separate church from the church in Rome. Um, 
but it was gradual in its Protestantism. There were some, the first Book of Common Prayer had a little bit of language that led some people to believe that transubstantiation, you know, communion, turns into the actual body and blood. It kind of was fishy on whether or not they really ruled that out or not. That made some of the Catholics sort of happy, made Protestants mad. Um, and so this was not a get up one morning and all of a sudden the Church of England is thoroughly Protestant and they've had it with Catholicism. It was, a, it was an evolution um, to you know, change, change over to Protestantism. Um, <clears throat> now, let's see here. Well, let me give you some dates that really you don't care probably. <laughs> but um, 1547, now you've got another, another king by that time, Edward VI. Um, and he perpetuated things moving Protestantly. 1553, Cranmer wrote what is today still kept as called 39 Articles of Faith. Okay, 39 Articles of Faith is the Church of England. John Wesley took the 39 articles 200 years later, 1700s, and adapted them to the Methodist church. Now, Wesley never left the Church of England, but the Methodists did as soon as he died. Um, and the 39 articles of the Methodist church are um, you know, further adapted with different groups, but that's essentially the statement of faith of our church. Is it, its roots go right to the 39 articles of the Church of England. Um, <clears throat> now, in 50, also in 1553, um, Mary, um, and I can't remember who, was she, I don't think she was, um, was she Henry VIII's daughter? Can't remember. Yeah, I thought so. But it, but she, I don't know where she was. She comes back on the scene because the king's Edward the sixth son dies, and she ends up called nicknamed Bloody Mary. Okay, she came back to the throne, threw everything back to Catholic, um, burned uh, some of these guys at the stake. Um, Cranmer threw them out of their offices. Um, and um, reestablished as far as she could all the Catholic properties, um, revived as much as she could of the monasteries and so forth, um, put, th there was just terrible inter-country war um, when she was doing all she could to bring them back into um, Catholicism. Now, she... In 1558, Church of England's back in um, under Elizabeth. Um, and then about that time, um, you have the beginning of the rise in England of people who felt like the Reformation didn't go far enough. There was still too much lingering Catholicism within the Church of England in some of its rituals. You have the rise of Puritanism, and by now you're just about 35 or 40 years from the Puritans landing in New England um, because of uh, they had to register. They were called dissenters. Um, you had to register and get permission to be a dissenter. 
if you weren't a member of the Church of England. But it was iffy if they'd leave you alone. Often they didn't. Um, and they would tax you. They would burn your little, you know, your places of worship down. Um, so th there was a, it was a rocky time here. You get on up into the 1600s, you have the English Civil War, you have the beheading of Charles, you got Oliver Cromwell who came to the throne who was a Puritan, and it was religious rule. He drove everybody nuts, and it really ruined a lot of, he was a, he was a, he was too radical, and so he kind of ruined the name of religion. Um, and so anyway, they go back to the monarchy. Um, in the late, what was it, 16, I can't remember, I think it was almost 40 years that um, Cromwell reigned. Um, but there was, there was a lot of years of back and forth um, of warfare, whether it was out and out or just seething right below the surface. Um, one, one last thing here. I mentioned these there are two guys, um, Hugh Latimer and Thomas Cranmer. And in the, there's St. Mary's, I believe it is, in Oxford. It's the Oxford University Cathedral. Um, that we visited a couple summers ago. And you kind of wonder what people are thinking, but you've got this ancient cathedral, and I can't remember the date, but it, the date was clear back in like 11 something or 10 something that thing started being built. And there's one, one of the, you know, there's these huge um, columns that line where the seating is and the roof comes down and it's kind of lower than the high part. Anyway, um, there, there's a picture, there's quite a reading there, but they took stone chisels or something and they chiseled notches in this, these beautiful, this one beautiful, big column, stone column, so they could make a wooden scaffold, scaffolding, when they had a trial there for Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And they made, hooked it to this, you know, um, column, and then made him stand on this scaffolding and face the inquisitors, the the you know, all the officials that were um, after him for, um, well, he signed, oh, it was Latimer. I better not, I'll wait. Um, either one of those two guys, Latimer or Cranber, had signed a, recant, a recantation that he took back what he said about the Pope. Um, and then... Um, I think it was Latimer. And then um, that got him off the hook some months before, maybe a year before. They bring him back because he, he recanted his recantation. And he said, no, I, the Pope's a think after all. And so he's back in trouble. Um, when they finally burned him at the stake and Cranmer at the same time, we went to the place. There's a, a long, there's a high spire. And there's 
sculptures, life-size um, sculptures up at the top of these two guys and several others who were burned at the stake right at that spot, which is the city square in Oxford. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure it was Ridley. If it wasn't Ridley, it was Cranmer, because there's only two of them, um, that got burned at the same time. But put his right hand into the flame as it started to burn his hand first, saying, I'm putting my hand that once signed a recantation, um, and I'm not going to do it again. They both kind of prayed at the same time, oh God, open the eyes of the King of England, um, and died. <clears throat> but the Church of England continued to um, evolve a bit further and further away from Catholicism, more and more Protestant, and they were kind of a medium, middle way between stark Reformed theology and Arminianism. West, the Wesley's brothers could be ordained Church of England priests and be thoroughgoing Arminians. Um, and they were fine. They, they didn't do anything to them. So um, it was a bit of a compromise that they had there. Even to this day, when we were over there in 19 in the summer, we went to a Church of England church um, and that Charles and Esther attended. Um, and the Church of England has a vibrant, small e, not denominational, um, small e evangelical wing within the Church of England. Strong evangelical Church of England in South America, especially Africa, um, and not near so strong in England, but there are good, solid, Bible-believing, um, evangelical churches within the Church of England. And to be honest with you, I really, I, I loved it. Now, maybe that's going to make me, I don't mind ritual. And you know, he, I, let me throw this in, because i got two minutes. A lot of people say, I, I ain't for them written prayers. I don't like written prayers. Shouldn't have written prayers. Don't ever read Psalms. That's all that is. I think some of those some of those prayers are the most beautiful prayers, um, just filled with good theology. Um, they sang some, you know, old. They sang some Methodist hymns. They sang some new stuff. Um, the pastor brought just a good sermon. Um, and it was refreshing, I guess you'd say. There, deep reverence. That's one of the things. There, if there's anything that I'd have to say, and I've been raised in evangelical Protestantism, um, too much of evangelical Protestantism is not reverent. I mean, we um, we we need. I, it wouldn't hurt us to have some reverence, some some kneeling and some um, written prayers and ritual doesn't hurt. Um, I think that we've somehow, we've sometimes, we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Um, 
and gone so far the other way that we, we've kind of brought God down to our level. But anyway, um, that's enough. Um, we'll quit. Next week, I'll just finish up a little bit of the, the, the English Reformation. Um, and then we'll start looking at what these different countries and the churches that were founded what they did is they began to spread to the New World, primarily North America, and then trace their heirs to today here in, in our country and around the world. Um, that will never get done. We, you know, we're looking at, where are we here? We're halfway through February. I think the first Wednesday or second Wednesday of May uh, we're done for the summer. Um, and so we'll have to get done. Um, I just want to kind of give end up with an overview of today, primarily in America, and the the different churches, beliefs, and so forth um, that we inherited really from the Reformation. Okay. <clears throat> Any questions, thoughts before we go? Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, dismiss us, we ask, with your grace and presence with us. And we are, we're grateful, Lord, for studying all this and seeing your hand. Even, Lord, you used just flat, wicked people, but turned things around to use them against their will to bring about good. Once again, we just see the overwhelming all-powerfulness of your hand and are grateful for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.